From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, and first this morning, I speak with performance psychologist Dr. Dana Sinclair, who discusses her new book called Dialed In, Do Your Best When It Matters Most, in which she shares her proven plan for getting the best results when the pressure is on. And then guest co-host Jay Burke and I speak with local resident, book author, and mom of seven children, Jen Drummond, who joins us to talk about her journey of climbing the seven second highest summits on each continent. And the book that she's written about it called Break Proof, Seven Strategies to Build Resilience and Achieve Your Life Goals. This all coming up this hour. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words from our underwriters. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. My next guest, Dr. Dana Sinclair, works with everything from professional athletes and teams in the NFL, NBA, PGA, the Olympics, and many, many more, along with surgeons, students, executive parents, actors, musicians, and more. She's a performance psychologist, and she helps performers shift their focus and deliver optimal performance in high pressure moments that define greatness. Take those moments and apply them to the rest of mortals. This is what her new book, which she joins me to discuss, it's called Dialed In, Do Your Best When It Matters Most. Dr. Dana Sinclair, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you so much, Lynn. Well, in our little town of Park City, Utah, and in the counties, surrounding counties, we have a lot of high-performing achievers in the realm of sport, Olympic sport, winter sport primarily, but many other sports as well. And there's become a growing cadre of sports psychologists here to help especially young people involved in sport through their years performing as athletes. What's the difference between a performance psychologist and say a sports psychologist? I mean, it's broader, obviously, but what else? It's broader. Now it's different qualifications, but essentially a, if you're a psychologist, you are helping people figure out what they can do to get by their hotspots and perform better. That's what I do. My main job is to help people learn how to control their emotions when the pressure is on. Most people do quite well on a daily basis. Thank you very much. But it's everybody's a performer and everybody has those situations or events where they want to be just a little bit more consistent or feel a little more satisfied with and you know get better results. So I know that breaches or glitches in performance are obviously very multifaceted and and complex but if you had to pinpoint sort of an overarching reason why humans in general you know freeze or or fail instead of perform how would you summarize that i think the biggest reason is our tension our tension goes up, we get tight physically, then we get a little cluttered mentally, and we're no longer focused on what we're doing. We're too worried about how we feel, which does not help us perform well at all. Yes. And then there's something, there's sort of a, a fine line between too much confidence and not enough confidence. How does confidence play into all of it? Confidence is a big factor in my practice. In fact, I talk to people all the time, whether it's you know in the office or at a dinner party, people love to talk about this. 
you know, to me, confidence is overrated. You might want it, but you do not need it to perform well. It's a, it's a very variable, intangible concept because if you really think about it, your confidence can change on you from day to day, minute to minute. It's unbelievable how one moment we can feel, oh, I can do this, and the next moment be flooded with negatives and worries about expectations and mistakes. I don't like people to focus on the confidence. I want them to be able to get calmer so they can focus on the task at hand in the moment. That's what works. Okay, so it's that centering and it's the focus and not letting other things in. Sounds, yes, it sounds easy. And it's not as complicated as people think it is. You just have to pre-plan a few things. And there's a simple process that I use that really has gotten traction with my clients because they can do it and implement it quickly and anybody can do it. Three mm. skills, that's about it. Before we get into that, let me reintroduce you. Dr. Dana Sinclair is joining me. She's joined to discuss her new book called Dialed In, Do Your Best When It Matters Most. So you've taken what you do in your everyday life, you know, working with, for example, the NFL, and that's a good a good example because of the Super Bowl, uh, you know, in everyone, not everyone's, in a, a lot of people's minds right now. Yep. And then you're applying that to, you know, someone who just has performance uh, issues in any facet of their life, really, right? It might not have made performance issues, really. I mean, I do work with a variety of, of people for sure, but whether you're you know, presenting in a high stakes meeting, taking an exam, dealing with a difficult or defensive critical person, or if you just want to be even better than you already are, you know, it's the mindset that's going to make the difference, not the skill set. Say in the mm -hmm. NFL, there's a lot of good people out there, the ones who can sort of dial in and focus on what they're doing, they're the ones who are going to separate themselves in terms of performance. And yeah. in fact, you know, I was just talking to a quarterback in the NFL and he was talking about how the simple skill of breathing properly and taking the time to do that regularly throughout a game has really made a difference in his ability to see where he's supposed to be throwing the ball. So, you know, we can all use these things. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm wondering how you ascertain what sort of thing a certain individual is going to need that's going to be that one key thing. Like for this quarterback, it's learning how to breathe. But for someone else, it might be something completely different. How do you get to that moment? Well, what I like to do is get people to think about their own performance styles, what makes them good, what gets in the way. So you have to figure out what your hotspots are, first of all, and it is different for everybody. But once you know that, then you basically can just pick the skill that's going to be helpful for you in the moment, as long as you have something to do in the moment that will help you execute correctly or stay smooth or stay calm that's really where i go with people and in the book there are, you know there's questions and scales and tools for you to figure out for yourself ah okay on a good day i do this and i think this and i talk to myself this way on a bad day oh what am i doing okay those are the two things i have to get around and you know i need a plan to do it so you have to pre-plan it a little but again it's and something that everybody can tweak and get better at. 
Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I hear a lot of people say things like this. If I get to the starting line of a race and I'm not nervous, or if I'm not questioning myself about my ability to do well or even complete it, then there's something wrong. Or if I'm about to give a presentation at work and I'm not a little bit nervous, I think there's something wrong. That could be superstition. And you talk about the difference between superstition and like a good routine. So something like the example I gave you, you know, how do you decide if it's good or bad for you? I think the best thing to do is to, one, if you're prepared, you're probably going to be okay. That's one thing. Sometimes people will think, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't care enough. I'm fine. I'll just let it happen. That's usually indicative of, yeah, you're not prepared. You're, you're looking for an excuse. You're, you just don't want to have to handle it. So you do have to face that, but really it's that it's that tension you want to check in on and know you've got to know your number. So on a scale of one to 10, if you're on those really good days, you're calm and loose, you're at a one, two, three on that scale, chances are you'll be fine. It's when it gets out of control on the other end, seven, eight, nine, that's when people have trouble. But I, you know, I, I don't often hear, Oh, I'm just, I'm just too relaxed to go and play my best. That's not, that just means you're not ready. Uh, okay. That's interesting. I love it. So can you talk to us about how you break your, uh, your book dialed in into, into parts? What are, what are the parts and how are you going to take us through this process? Okay. Well, first part is myth busting. I think it's important for everybody to think about what really is important in terms of performing sex successfully again things like confidence people think i have to have it no you don't it's overrated let's move on from that um people are fearful we're all fearful of results or mistakes things like that but if you don't face what really does get in the way uh you're not going to get by it so a, a number of these myths motivation should i let somebody else motivate me no you can't outsource that you've got to do it yourself and then yes you know superstitions of course which i never think are very helpful because they're usually just a way for us to handle our our feelings of anxiety going into something uh, so that's the the first part then it goes into the actual process three steps four skills then you end up making a plan for yourself and that plan that you have for your performance, whatever it is, should fit on a sticky note. It should be brief and small, but you've, you know, you'll have gone through the process and have a blueprint to get to that, that nice tight little plan for yourself. Mm. Dana, I'm wondering how you got into this line of work. Obviously you studied to be a, become a psychologist, but what hooked you into this notion of performance? It is funny because I started as an Aggie, really, and I ended up in psychology. Go figure, circuitous route. But I played um, on a national team and really enjoyed the competition. And you know, soon noticed that there were a lot of people who had a lot of talent, but they didn't show up when the pressure was on. And conversely, there were people that were mediocre, but boy, you could count on them when the pressure was on. So when you start to see those things, I just thought that performing was a very interesting topic. 
Mm, it is so interesting. And you talk about this in the book, why character is actually better than talent. Yes, because talent does not ensure success, but the mindset does. If you are cluttered and unable to focus, you will not be able to harness your talent. I've seen a lot of very talented people sort of flame out in their careers where mediocre people have risen to the top because of the mental approach and that they've spent the time to adjust and make the most of it. Yes. I'm wondering how harnessing anxiety so that anxiety becomes a tool, how we go about that. I, I remember years ago, um, I joined Toastmasters, which I'm sure you're you're familiar with. And it was amazing to me how many people said the night before a speech that they were going to give, they didn't sleep at all. And, you know, you can't show up your best when you haven't slept. And yet- but You have you to. <laughs> you, you, yeah, have to. So how is, you know, harnessing that anxiety, it can be good, but a lot of times it's crippling. Well, again, a little bit of tension is good and it's good to know where your, your good zone is. But I, I really don't think anxiety is a great tool. I think we have to spend time calming that down. As I say, that's the number one skill of anything you do. If you can learn to breathe properly and self-soothe, get calmer or just a little more calm-ish, you're going to get to your best. So yeah. that's how you, it's managing that anxiety, not fueling it up. Yes. If you look at, you know, the part two of the book and these, the three-step process for making your own plan, how will you coach people into recognizing, we're so bad at sort of self-reflection, aren't we? And yes. how, how do you guide people towards that in, in your book? Well, it's funny. A, a lot of people, when I'm talking, they actually know what their hotspots are, what distracts them, what derails them, what gets them very anxious. They just don't want to face it. So at least when we sit down and talk about it, or you have the safe space to read it in a book, you can take that time to think, okay, if I really do want to be better, I do have to figure out what these things are. So I think most people actually know, but for those who don't want to go there or, you know, are a bit afraid of it or really are unsure, I provide a list of the top, you know, the top 20 things that get in the way. And they they fall into sort of five buckets, you know, is it tension? Is it confidence? Is it a lack of focus? You know, is it uh, trying to be too perfect? Is it a lack of mental preparation? Those are, those are the big five, but of course, they fan out into it. They could be a hundred. So I just give people a bit of a structure and they can tick off. Oh yeah, that's me. Oh yeah. In fact, a lot of people will tick off 20 and think, oh gosh, but don't be scared if that's you, because really pick out your top two or three super derailers. And if you get a plan to deal with that or those, the rest tend to fall away because they're not the issue in the first place. Mm. Okay, so in that of the five, the last one you mentioned was lack of mental preparation. Can you go into that a little bit more in, in terms of, you know, what is mental preparation? Okay, again, it's these, it's, it's these skills, but it's do you just 
wing it and just, you know, walk into something. Well, we'll see what happens. I'll hope for the best. Or do you try to prepare? Do you settle? Do you breathe? Do you calm down? Do you have a few factors, cues to think about in, like, if you're writing an exam, what am I supposed to do? Okay, I've got to settle down so I can think. I have to read the question very carefully. I have to go for partial marks, these types of things. If I'm in an interview situation, I better listen to what that interviewer is saying instead of formulate things in my head and miss what they're trying to tell me. But I can't really do that unless I pre-plan. Mm, yes. So having those types of things ready to go, that, that's mental preparation. Mm. And how to talk to myself, catching myself out if I'm getting too negative, becoming more productive in my self-talk. It's funny, I'm thinking about uh, an experience I had just this morning. I'm doing private tutoring for learning Italian. Oh. And for some strange reason, my lesson ended up being at 5 a.m., which is a difficult time to have a lesson. And I woke up at 4.45 and I didn't, I didn't think about it at all. I just thought I'm going to log on. I've had multiple lessons, dozens of lessons with this particular instructor. And I got on and I couldn't link two words together. I couldn't do what she was asking me to do. I heard myself speaking really loudly and almost <laughs> in a voice that wasn't mine. And then about halfway through the lesson, I felt myself calming down, yep. not overthinking it. Maybe I was breathing. My voice sounded more calm and, and quieter. I wasn't yes. yelling. Yes. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, I did not prepare for this. I didn't prepare, you know, not only in terms of like, quote unquote, homework, but in terms of just centering myself before it started. And that is, you know, then looking at your book, I thought, wow, you know, how often do we go through our day and not mentally prepare? Yes. And most of the time, it's fine. It's just in those moments where you really want to do well or need to, or the moment is meaningful, well, we better we better be ready and we better be able to get ready quickly. Yes. So you have these incredible um, glowing uh, endorsements from people like Billie Jean King, from the actress Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, the owner of the LA Dodgers, Mark Walter, and you have this heavy hitting list of very high achieving people that you're helping to be even better achievers or better performers. It's Is interesting who you meet along the way. Absolutely. How did you get into this realm of coaching these, these really, you know, not only famous, well-known, but very high achieving people? Well, it, I might not, you never know if I've been coaching somebody or if I'm talking to them about performance. So there's, you know, there's not always coaching these people directly. But as I say, when you are in professional sports and you start to meet people who are high achievers, you just end up talking to a lot of high achievers along the way. That's how it works. Would you be able to encapsulate, you know, people who are high achieving and they really have seem to have a great handle on their performance? Is there something that sets them apart from <laughs> the rest of us? Right. 
the, the rest of us, 99% of humans probably. <laughs> well, no, actually it, it not, they're not so different than other people. They can just get to what they need to more quickly in the moment. So I do feel that there's, you know, talent is the easy, the easy, uh, answer but it's it's the incomplete answer there really is it's the mindset the the mental approach and there's sort of i call them difference makers there's five things that if people do more of it takes them from you know better to best great to greater so i say well why not act these things out more and the five are you have to take action sometimes you can't just sort of sit back and be passive you've got to make things happen you've got to slow down people rush then they can't think and then they don't stay focused. They need to listen longer. Even five seconds waiting, you know, can convey disinterest in someone or confidence. If you just wait and hear what they've got to say. Uh, sometimes people need to drop the details. They get too worked up about uh, the details of a situation. And if that's, if that's you out there, sometimes you have to sort of, delegate and try to coach someone else along instead of trying to do it all yourself all the time. And the fifth one is checking in. If you don't check in on yourself or evaluate how you've done after an event, it's very difficult to improve and know what you have to adjust. So I think the top people, besides having some talent, but everybody's got some talent, they do one or more of these things more often. Mm. In fact, Julie Jean King said, you know, she wakes up every morning and she thinks about listening longer to people. Just, you know, she's a fast-paced person and she just loves to, you know, to interact with people, but she just makes a point of, okay, that's what she's going to do today. Mm, I like that. I wonder why we are not good listeners. Is it that, you know, we, we think it's not really a skill. It's just something we do and that we all do, but the reality is we don't, we don't always listen. No. And I think it's a lot of it is, you know, performance style and how we're built. And a lot of people are fast paced, reactive on to the next thing, have a list of things to do. It's just sort of a natural energy. And those people need to use that difference maker more. So there's a lot of people out there that are more patient that will sit back and listen and hear things and they don't move at the same pace. Sometimes they need to bump it up and get going. So I guess it just depends on, on how you're built and what your prominent behaviors are. Mm -hmm. And knowing what those are, mm -hmm. it's very helpful in terms of tweaking them to be even better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think of the uncomfortable silence that, you know, you're talking about, listening longer, allowing silence, not jumping back in with the answer all the time. That is, that's a real skill. And I think, you know, do we mostly attribute that to people who we think that's in their character? It's not something that they've worked on. It is mostly in their character or if they happen to be stressed and anxious and rushed. You know, when we're stressed, we speed up. It's like the breathing. If mm -hmm. we aren't prepared or we're stressed, we breathe louder, we talk louder, we do these things. So some people have to pull it down, other people have to push it up. Mm. As you've been talking, it's been making me think a little bit about self-deprecation. 
I've noticed that there are people who either, you know, they maybe can't accept a compliment or they are very self-deprecating and saying, oh, what I accomplished is no big deal. Does that play a role in not allowing us to accept our, our good performance when we are performing? Yes, I think it's a very good point. And in fact, uh, I think we're taught, oh, don't talk about your accomplishments or yes, you've accomplished that, but then what's next? So I love people to have a facts list of their accomplishments, what they've done well, what they've won, whether they've, uh, what you know, feedback people have given them, have a list, have a bullet list and pay more attention to it because people negate that all the time. And it's a very good way to ground yourself into looking at this list and thinking, you know, I'm not so bad, I can do this. It's an important part of the, the self-talk skill. Mm, yep. So I, I push people to their facts for sure. <laughs> Do you find differences across the board between men and women and how we approach performance? You know, you think I would have, after all these years and doing all these interviews with people, you think I would have a good answer to that. But my best answer is no, not, I don't find a difference between men and women. It's based on the individual profile. So and I, I checked in on that, you know, year after year, because I get that question a lot, but it really does come down to how that person handles, you know, behaviorally handles themselves, what their style is. Mm -hmm. Well, the book is dialed in. Do your best when it matters most. My guest is performance psychologist, Dr. Dana Sinclair. Dana, thank you so much for joining me on The Mountain Life. This is great stuff. Thank you, Lynn. I did appreciate that. Thank you. Dr. Dana Sinclair, and we'll be back after these words. We'll be speaking with local resident and world record holder, Jen Drummond, about her climbing the seven second summits when we return. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Jay Burke. Our next guest, local parkite Jen Drummond, has seven kids who regularly attend summer camps. This gives her time to attend her own summer camp of sorts. Jen has recently finished setting a world record by climbing the seven second summits, the second highest mountain peak on every continent. She learned a lot along the way and has written a new book about how to tackle goals like this or maybe not even like this. It's called Breakproof. She joins us now to discuss her new book. Jen Drummond, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you for having me today. Well, I just had to include your seven kids in the intro and, and even start with that because I have to think, I mean, for a lot of us, having kids is the hardest thing we've ever done. So yes. what are the parallels between having seven kids, especially, and climbing these mountains? Yeah, I will tell you that seven children are harder than any of those seven summits. So um, anybody who's listening, mountain climbing is much easier than seven children. Um, there's a ton of parallels, right? Every day a child comes home and you don't know their mood. You don't know what you do to support them. Does it make sense to like hammer this topic or do we let this topic slide? And when you're in the mountains, it takes a lot of patience. Mother Nature can throw some storms at you that you didn't quite anticipate. 
and you need to make decisions on does it make sense to continue to climb or should we go back to home base and come back another time? Yeah, well, and then to further draw uh, parallels, I'm wondering about the the seven second summits and, you know, reading that they are more elusive, more remote, and in some ways it makes it more difficult. And again, comparing them to having kids, you know, it's it's all a mystery. You don't know what's out there. It's Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. I remember climbing in Antarctica and we were looking at the records that we have and only 15 people had summited this mountain before. And we were in this spot and we're like, okay, is that rock missing because it rolled down the mountain? Is it underneath snow this year? Did we make a wrong turn, right? You just don't have as much data to be able to make decisions off of. And you're you're following some rules from before, but they don't always apply because the circumstances and situations have changed. Kind of along those, those same lines. I mean, when you're there and you're in that situation, those things are changing, but let's say you're on that rivet, you're on the edge thinking of your family and how do you separate? How do you stay focused? Can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah. Um, you know, with you on the call, Jay, it's a lot like mountain biking, right? If you're <laughs> in a tough terrain and we have like your focus is there, you don't have bandwidth to focus on other things and start questioning stuff. You're just, okay, I need to do the next safe thing, the next safe thing, the next safe thing. So luckily those challenging situations are the easier ones at some level from a mindset standpoint, because you don't have the bandwidth to make other decisions. When you have the stuff that you're coming up to it, like, okay, I know this is gonna be the hard section. Like, how do I stay in this game? Like what mentally story am I telling myself right now to get through that next section? And then when you get through it and you're past it, I mean, you have to celebrate those little victories around the way, right? Like I did this, I have that momentum and just build from that confidence that comes from doing the hard things that are definitely gonna be there. You just don't actually know how hard or how difficult until you're actually there. Well, and then having the family at home, when does that start to creep in? Or do you find you're just so focused out there, like you were saying? Is it like when you're at base camp? Yeah. Um, you know, and when I see something really pretty and I want them to see it and share it with them, or when we're talking about things of our why, my kids are definitely my why they're watching. They're, I'm demonstrating to them how you can do life, what you're capable of as a human. How do you own happiness in your personal pursuits while managing other roles that you have? Being in business, being a mother, being a father, doing all these different things. So for me, my kids were always with me. It was very easy to tap into their energy and be like, okay, Jack's watching or Jana's watching. How would I want them to respond in this situation. And that's how I'm going to respond because I'm going to demonstrate it. That's beautiful. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, our guest is local Park City resident Jen Drummond. She's also a world record holder. And she's written a new book about her experience climbing all of the seven second summits. The book is called Break Proof. It's seven strategies to build resilience and achieve your life goals. Oh, I just have to ask you this question, Jen. 
all of your children's names start with J. How do you ever keep them straight? <laughs> I just say J, right? Like, and that's yeah. my shortcut to whoever's in the room or vicinity better answer. And so there you go. It's real easy. But um, yeah, no, I will sometimes rumble through a few before we get the right name for sure. Yeah. I don't know why that just popped into my head. Aside from that, you know, it's just so interesting to go into your history. What brought you to this place? We know it was a car accident that was nearly fatal, but can we go back before that? You're obviously a very athletic person, but were you ever a mountaineer or even I was a not. climber? No, I was not. And that was kind of the weird thing about the quest that got elevated into this pursuit because I had no idea what I was saying yes to. I hadn't even slept in a tent before. But it was one of those whole body yeses. I'm like, I can't deny the feeling that this is exciting and is pulling me into it. Um, but I did have a background in gymnastics. So gymnastics is a strong foundation for anything climbing. Um, I did play soccer in college. So that gives you that fast twitch and that slow twitch muscle fiber that allows you to do things and have bursts of energy um, over a durational period of time. When I first moved to Park City, I got into triathlon because they train all the time and I knew I'd meet people. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna. So then that helped build the endurance. So looking back on it, aside from rock climbing or ice climbing or some of those specific sports, my foundation was pretty strong to support this effort. So what was your background before? I saw, I think maybe business finance. Is that, can you yeah. tell us a little about that? Yeah, so I got into finance out of college. A friend of mine graduated a year ahead and said I was expensive, so I should deal with money because otherwise I might be a financial train wreck for life. Thank you, friend. Great advice. Has been very beneficial for me. Um, and then I did that proverbial thing. I hired myself out of a job because the dream job growing up where I grew up was to be a stay-at-home mom. And so I positioned myself to be the stay-at-home mom. I start having these children. I start going to classroom parties for holidays. And I'm with moms that have those pumpkin sweaters and pumpkin hair ties and pumpkin socks. And I love those women. They are not me. And I'm sitting there all of a sudden like, this is not my people. Like, I'm glad there's these people, but what do I do? And I actually had a lot of shame and guilt around that just because, oh, I'm so lucky, I'm here, I should be grateful, blah, 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 blah. And I told myself, once my kids got to college, then I would get back to me. And I think a lot of us can fill that blank in. Once X happens, then Y can happen. And I was just living it in that realm. And for me, a car accident shook everything up, allowed me to rewrite the paradigm and start looking at life and attacking it a different way. Well, you kind of stole a couple of questions there, but can you, so, I mean, you, you know, this is a lot about resilience, your new, your new book, which has just released. Can you go into that a little bit? And, and um, I mean, what, what does that mean to you in a, in a bigger picture? Yeah. Um, you know, we're all going to have limiting beliefs at some level that is keeping us stuck or keeping us where we are. And if we learn to challenge those and explore and expand what we're capable of doing and experiencing, so much magic can happen for ourselves, for our communities, for the people that we get to interact with. I get to talk on stages now and share these stories. And for me, everything's on the other side of resilience. 
And I think writing the book, you know, I built a business, I was raising children, I did these mountain climbs, and there's so many parallels between them. One of the big ones that stands out right now is big mountains take big teams. And I think a lot of times we set these big goals for ourselves, and like, think, take the point to point. I've raced that race. You have people along the way as aid stations or to help you. You have training plans ahead of time. You have all these things that go into that. That race is a different race if you're self-supported. Yeah. And so when we're setting goals for ourselves, if we're doing a self-supported goal, that's a different monster than if we have this goal and we bring others along the pursuit or we allow others to be part of that journey. It's a lot easier to get to the top and quite frankly, a little bit more enjoyable. That's a great segue into sort of how you present your book and the different chapters that everyone can take from, you know, each of your peaks that you summited and then apply it. It's kind of how you organize the book, the seven um, strategies and and then the seven summits. You know, going into, let, let's talk about chapter one briefly, Mount Tyree, cast your vision wider and deeper. What does this mean? Yeah. Okay. So for me, this is what happened. I was going to climb a mountain for my 40th birthday. I was climbing a mountain named Ama de Blom. However, COVID entered the scene. And so I'm not climbing anywhere and I'm homeschooling seven children. And one day my buddy's like struggling with math homework. So I'm doing that parent pep talk. We do hard things. You've got this. <laughs> and this son looks up at me and he goes, if we do hard things, why are you climbing a mountain called I'm a dumb blonde instead of a real mountain like Mount Everest? And I sat there for a minute. I'm a dumb blonde. I'm a dumb honey. Not I'm a dumb blonde, but thank you. We'll look at Everest. And so we did and he went to bed and I was still looking at Everest. And I thought, you know what? If this kid thinks Everest is the hardest thing in the whole world, I'm going to climb it and I'm going to show him whatever Everest is we're capable of summiting. Well, then from there, I hire a coach. And then the coach was like, hey, buy this book about becoming an uphill athlete. So I buy the book. And in the front of the book, there was a foreword about a lady who got a Guinness World Record for doing something in the Alps. I must have been having a terrible day, like terrible. And I didn't like homeschooling or I don't know what it was, but I had this like bold statement where I could have done that to my coach. And I can suffer, I can do hard things. Like I, if I set a Guinness world record, my kids would think I'm cool. That's how they learned how to read. I am not a cool mom right now in any way, shape of the form of the word. And so my coach is like, okay, I'll think of something. So then a few weeks later, he came back and he's like, Jen, I think you should climb the seven second summits. I'm like, I think you just said a tongue twister. I don't even know what you're talking about. And he's like, well, let me explain. So then he got into the details. You know, they're harder than the first. It's only been done by one male, all the continents, all the travel. And he's like, seven continents, seven mountains, seven children. It sounds like a jackpot. I'm like, it does. And I was so excited about it. Like, I was excited about Ama de Blom. And then, like, Everest was like, okay, I'm going to show my kid by demonstrating what I can do. And then the Guinness World Record was, I'm going to show moms everywhere that we can do something that doesn't make sense to anybody but ourselves and still be fantastic mothers, fantastic wives, fantastic people at work and all these different things. We don't have to have one or the other. And it was so exciting. And so I think when we allow ourselves to go wider and deeper 
and allow that message to show up in our lives any way that it does, it's so much fun to just lean into that and say, yes, even if you haven't slept in a tent yet, it's okay, you'll learn. Yeah. Still, your trainer suggesting the seven second summits to you, he saw something in you because you don't just go saying that to the average person. Hey, why don't you do this and set a world record? And was that something that he saw in you? Would it have been there had you not had that really close call in that 2018 car accident? Or was it something that grew in you that that showed him just something about your nature, your character? Yeah, you know, I think that car accident really woke me up to the concept. I don't get to choose when I die, but I sure get to choose how I live. And am I really living was the question I kept asking myself. Am I really experiencing this world? And it allowed me to shift from, I need to be really good at everything to, I just want to experience it. Who cares if I don't summit Everest? How cool is it to go to Nepal and meet people who are trying to summit Everest and see how far I get up the mountain? Or who cares if I don't make it to the top of Ojos del Salado? Okay. It's cool to see the Atacama Desert and meet the people from Chile. And there's so much in the experience that I think sometimes we get lost in the goal or lost in the destination. And we forget that life is lived in the journey or the pursuit of that. And the reason why we have these goals or these destinations is because it gives us a filter. If I say yes to this, does it bring me closer or does it bring me farther? And it helps you make decisions to be able to get to where you want to go. And when you make those decisions, you get to have these amazing opportunities and meet people and experience things that you wouldn't if you stayed at home. <clears throat> because it is the mountain life and we're here in Park City, I mean, tell us a little bit about where your kids are today in this journey. What ages are they? I I saw some pictures. I didn't know how recent they were, but like, what are they doing? Or, and are they embracing the mountaineering direction channel, if you will, or what, what are their interests? Yeah, so my oldest is 17. He's a junior in high school right now. My youngest are twin daughters that are in fifth grade. Everybody's embraced the mountain lifestyle since we've been out here. I've got mountain bikers, I have skiers, I have rock climbers, I have hikers. It's just fun, right? Like they go on the trails, but they're more excited about making their own trail in the woods and not following the groomers and just the different pieces. I am taking three of my boys to Kilimanjaro Friday of this week. Wow. So yeah, so winter break, we are going to go there and climb that mountain because it's safe and I, they want to have the experience. So it felt like a good one to have. Um, so I'm super excited to take them. When the younger ones get a little bit older, they have different mountains that they're looking to climb and I'm, I'm in for all of it. That's great. Darn near have a little basketball team right there in your house. And two cheerleaders. <laughs> so there you go. Yes. <laughs> well, I see that you have a podcast. Do you keep that more like about things that are happening right now? Or is that, for instance, maybe you're tapping into what you're doing with your your three boys on this Kilimanjaro climb? What, is that, what does that look like? Yeah. So um, the podcast is called Seek Your Summit. And I interview people that have had success and are churning that success into significance. And so, because I do feel like the goal calls us, but then once we achieve it, the true beauty is being able to share it and instill the lessons to help other people in their own summits. So I interview a number of guests just to hear 
what their setbacks were, what their obstacles were, what their struggles were. And then once it's starting to hum, how did they give back or how did they find that they still had excitement in the pursuit by sharing with the next generation? Jen, going back to Jay's question about your kids, you know, it seems like either our kids become exactly like us or they decide, boy, they're going to be the opposite of us. And and uh, I have just two kids and they're wonderful. Um, they're grown now, but at a very young age, I was so, ex- you know, talking about mountain biking, I was so excited about mountain biking and getting them into, you know, the little local races. And consequently, they decided that they hated mountain biking. (laughs) And how do you teach your kids as what it sounds like also, you know, their primary educator to either impart upon them, you know, your goals or how to create their own. And it sounds like they're following you a bit more. Where does that all figure in? You know, we all have our Everest goal at the house, which is kind of fun because then when we have that language, then I know what is their serious focus right now. And I know how to support them, um, whatever that may be. One of them, it might be like being a better girlfriend, (laughs) like to like get along with that relationship or whatever. But um, for sporting wise, my kids have been introduced to all of it. They've taken to different pieces at different times like they were really good ski racers for a while and then they just didn't want to do it anymore. And I allowed them to stop and say, okay, I trust your judgment. If this is something you really don't want to do and like, tell me why. And we'd go through all the whys and we'd go through all like the conversations. And then I I would say like, I really just don't want you to leave the sport entirely. Is there another way that you can participate in it that you would enjoy it? And they've come back and some of them, some of them haven't. I need to allow them to have the experience that they want. Definitely make it easier for them to have the experience that I want, maybe. But that's just parenting in general. If I want to go mountain biking, please come with me. (laughs) Tell me, you know, the seven second summits I've read is harder in in many ways. I mean, K2 is a part of that. And it's tell the listeners a little bit about that. You know, what's the difference between those two? I want I want people to understand really what you've accomplished here. It's it's quite a feat. It's crazy. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. So for example, you take Africa, you climb Mount Kenya, Mount Kenya is a 20 pitch rock climb. I'm in rock climbing shoes. I'm in a harness. We have ice axes at the top because there's actually this thing called the gates of mist that get filled with ice. And we're doing rock climbing on ropes. Um, When you climb Kilimanjaro, it's a hike the entire time. You're never using all fours. Um, And it's a much more gradual climb than what Mount Kenya is. You get down to Mount Tyree um, versus Mount Vincent, which is in Antarctica. Mount Vincent would be like for all of us listening locally, like climbing up first time face of Park City Mountain Resort. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mount Tyree is a 22 pitch ice climb. And and so, and it's 60% grade and you only can, it's an 18 hour summit day because the only spot you can put a tent is like way low. So it makes the big day big. Um, K2 compared to Everest, it's just a different beast, right? For the longest time, 25% of the people that summited K2 died in its pursuit. You have rock climbing features. You have different things that are really exposed. You travel under the bottleneck, which at any time it can go. And then everybody there's not going to make it. So 
they're just different. And a lot of the climbs, for example, you just don't have the people. So we did Mount Logan, which is the second highest point for North America in 2022. We did not summit. We might have had a better chance if there was other people on the mountain to share resources or beta or ideas or like, hey, can we go as a bigger group together? Um, we didn't have that luxury because there's just not that many people climbing it. When we went back in 2023, we actually did a team of three people um, because every single time you set up a camp, you had to build an igloo around the tent. Otherwise the wind would rip the tent. Jeez. And so you had to like inchworm up this mountain. So you'd hike up to a certain spot, bury your gear. So it wouldn't blow away, go back to your tent, sleep the next day, pack up your tent, go past where you buried gear, set up your tent as high as you can go. Then the next day you go back and get your gear and bring it up and you need weather to participate that entire time. We were in a storm for seven days. Wow. There was a 14 hour period that I was in all my gear because we, the storm like was blowing so much snow in that we, the tent might rip. And if the tent ripped, we were dead. That was yeah. the only thing keeping us alive. And so like, it was just, it's so extreme on so many levels. And a lot of the climbs are not fixed rope. So fixed rope on Everest is they have Sherpa that set that rope or teams that yeah. set that rope and then you click into it and then you just hike up it. And if you fall, your clicking device is gonna hold you right where you are. When you're climbing Dick Tau or some of these mountains, I'm tied to my climbing partner. If either one of us makes a mistake, we're going down the mountain until one of us can self-arrest both of us. That's incredible. Wow. What a challenge. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have just about a minute left, but I wanted to make sure I asked you this question because this jumped out at me as, you know, someone who is has great resilience like you do. I think a lot of people picture them as they just trudge ahead no matter what. But resilience, and I don't have the exact quote from your book, but it was something like it's the strategy to be able to tell when what you're pursuing is not what you need to pursue anymore. And that's, I, I'm thinking that that's chapter six, recognize when it isn't your mountain. Yeah, Can you just or just the title in general. So if we think of the title break proof, we're going to break. But in the breaks, we have the proof of what's working, what's not working, what did we learn? How do we continue to climb on? Do we even want to climb on? Or now that we know this thing, now we want to go in a different direction. And so resilience isn't about not breaking. It's about when you break, what are you doing with that space? What are you allowing yourself to understand so that you can better determine the best way forward? Well, the book is Break Proof, and it's seven strategies to build resilience and achieve your life goals. Our guest is Park City resident, and world record holder, Jen Drummond. Jen, thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life. It's been great to hear from you. Thank you. And I have a gift for everybody that's listening. If you want to text the word Everest to the number 33777, you're going to get sent to you a video of the Milky Way going over Everest Base Camp. And I love this photo or this little video because anytime I'm feeling overwhelmed or life's getting ahead of me, when I look at this, I am reminded of like how small and insignificant or whatever's going on truly is. And I think it's a great help in building your resilience is just to remember, let it go. That's great. We'll put that in our web post. Jen, thank you so much and have a great time in, in Africa with your kids. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.